Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. It's uh, the end of another great week and I'm so excited to bring this podcast with Nathaniel Whitmore, one of my favorite content creators in this space. Yeah, Nathaniel does a really great job with his breakdown podcast where he ropes in a bunch of different thinkers that are relevant on a moment's notice. And so it's it does a very good job of keeping me up to speed with what's going on uh, and what the current narratives are. So a bunch of Nathaniel's episodes, he talks a lot about Bitcoin as a lens for truth, Bitcoin as an anchor for reference, for viewing other things, and then also talks about how that relates to the way that crypto people who follow and understand the Bitcoin and, and crypto and the world of the world of crypto, they view the outside world from a different lens. And at least uh, in the times of coronavirus, that that has been beneficial for us at large. Uh, and so we go into these subjects and try and peel back the layers as to how, what the relationship is between crypto current events and truth and reality. And before we get into the podcast, let's talk about our sponsors. First up is eToro. Again, you guys, this is the number one all-in-one trading platform where you can do everything from follow your favorite traders and just copy trade them to just buying Bitcoin, the smart thing to do, and stacking sats, taking it off the exchange and putting it into your own custody. Um, you guys, eToro is a fantastic platform. Again, they support Bitcoin, Ether, and all of your favorite cryptocurrencies. They support every kind of trading strategy that you could want. Go to b.tc backslash eToro POV. Again, that is b.tc backslash eToro POV. Make sure to use our link so that way they know what we sent you. If you are building something on Ethereum that is managing users' funds, you need to get that thing audited. QuantStamp is the leading smart contract auditing firm in the crypto space with the most robust resumes of past clients, including MakerDAO, Chainlink, Sableer, Pool Together, RDI, the list goes on. Uh, not only are they technical auditors, but they are also economic auditors as well. This is something that we learned when we had Richard Ma on, uh, the CEO of QuantStamp. Uh, not only do they look at your code and make sure that there are no typos, but they also look at different attack surfaces. Um, so, for example, the BZX, BZX hack was not a bug in a code, but a failure in a in a economic security standpoint. And QuantSamp does both of these things. So if you are building something that is in the DeFi space, you should go to expertaudits.com and get an audit from the company that has audited the most DeFi projects on Ethereum. All right, guys, without further ado, this is a great one with Nathaniel Whitmore. Nathaniel Whitmore of The Breakdown. Uh, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Nathaniel, I am a huge fan of all the content that you put out, especially lately in these, this time of uncertainty and crisis. You have really upped your game uh, with content production, getting guests, getting perspective, and discovering the new narratives that have come out. And so I want to do a tip of the hat for just you stepping up and, and, and doing what you're doing with The Breakdown. I think it's a, a really valuable resource of information gathering and perspective gaining in, in this space. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. You know, like I, um, <clears throat> I would think we're going to talk about this, but for me, the 
the, the entire crypto space is like a gateway drug for people to think about systems of power uh, and just how the world is structured and organized and what agency they have or not to change those things. And so in moments like this, when um, everything is up for grabs to some extent uh, for this small little window, it's a, I think it's a particularly important moment to recontextualize everything that we're doing, uh, you know, in, in that new context, in that new light. So I've been trying to, uh, to bring guests who have a lot of different takes on the world or even people who are just exposed to different takes on the world. So I, I appreciate that it's, uh, it's resonating. You come off, a skill that you have is coming off as extremely neutral. And I think that's really important in your role because you are, to me, the breakdown is a platform, it's a neutral platform for others to come and share their perspectives, mm-hmm. uh, which is difficult in this space, uh, especially when you step into a podcast that is pitch, pitches themselves as a Bitcoin versus Ethereum podcast. Has this been difficult to you? How do you view your neutrality and your content production? You know, the, the, for me, the neutrality isn't about, neutrality is based on the fact that uh, I'm, I'm interested in almost everything, right? Like on a, on a base level and very willing, I think, to be, uh, to learn new things, to be proven wrong. Like my system for my mental model for organizing the world has always been to be like extraordinarily confident about what I know based on the inputs that I have, but also be hungry to look for new inputs that could change that. And, um, and that's for whatever reason, that's just how, like how I've always been. And so with, uh, with the crypto industry, I, I mean, in some ways, you know, like <clears throat> for me, it's, it's my, my interests tend to be more in the, like I said, the big kind of global systems changing type stuff. So things that relate to that are going to get me more naturally interested than other projects that are, you know, there, there's a ton of projects that are cool, quirky, different, could be really disruptive to a particular industry that I, I think are, are, are neat and really rad. And for people who are invested in that, like are, are super cool, but it's just not exactly where I am. But because of that, like if I'm going to give those projects a highlight or that perspective a highlight it doesn't necessarily um undermine or impact my perspective on things i would actually say that the hardest thing about neutrality and this is not a crypto specific thing is that uh if you are trying to build audience um neutrality is the enemy of attention uh in a lot of in a lot of contexts right like you have to work really hard to go find that audience of people who are interested in multiple perspectives. I mean, you guys know this because you're trying to create something that is, it's not a <clears throat> neutral isn't the right word for what you do, but is purposefully, uh, pers- purposefully po- uh, perspective clashing, right? And, um, and I think like, if you look at uh, the incentive structure on just Twitter to take a small sample, like screaming and being the best at pushing like the most popular narratives for whatever tribe you're in. And again, this is not a, just a crypto specific thing. It's just the way that the, the algorithms reward it. So I, I think in some ways the, uh, the neutrality is a lot harder in terms of like rational audience building and business decision-making than it is in terms of like being a person interested in a bunch of things. So outside of like the fact that, crypto is really kind of a space for polymaths and people that like the macro picture like what about what about crypto drew you in and why are you staying in crypto like there's so much things so many things in directions that you could go post corona like uh why crypto there's kind of two, two parts of that question one is uh what got me here and then two is what the world looks like after and why it's interesting to use this as the lens through which you engage 
the got me here question is, it's interesting. So I spent about a decade in Silicon Valley and um, I was around when Bitcoin was getting popular or starting to get known out there. Like uh, I actually advised a company that went through YC, the same class as Coinbase. I started subscribing to Coindesk super, super early, like 2014 or whenever they first started doing their newsletters. But uh, <clears throat> it was so much the payments narrative then, right? It was the same time that Square was starting and all these things. And it was just like unfathomably boring, right? I mean, we even made videos. I had a company that taught big brands how, what tech to work with. And we did videos for Coca-Cola about Bitcoin and blockchain. And it was, again, it was so slanted through this. This might be another way to pay for things on the internet lens rather than any of the any of the economics of the system, right? Like any of that side. Now, this is 100% like my own fault for not digging deeper, right? This is an unexamined interaction. There were people out there who were uh, already on that tip, right? Who, who knew and were focused on that side of things. It just wasn't the dominant narrative in traditional VC circles. So it actually took leaving San Francisco, which I did in 2017. We moved to the Hudson Valley to be closer to family and to just kind of like switch the game from, uh, you know, city in the weeks, rural on the weekends to rural on the weeks and city when we need to. And <clears throat> my original background, what got me out to San Francisco was I had helped, I was one of the uh, early people who started change.org. Um, I came out to help them build out a media network to build their first couple million users. And so my background was all in social impact, social change. And once I got away, I actually had context to come back and look at Bitcoin as a system uh, for that, that was more akin to those, some of those global change systems, those things that I had been interested in previously, than kind of like the tech world that I had been brought into or kind of sucked down the hole of for, for 10 years. So, uh, so that, that's kind of what, what pulled me in is recontextualizing it in terms of these power systems. Now, in terms of where we're going forward uh, and why stay in crypto, I think that we are about to have a mass scale shift in the way that power is organized and distributed in the world, right? Uh, we're going to have a pretty fundamental dislocation of the world that all of us have grown up in. And it's gonna be happening so frequently and in so many ways, it, it won't necessarily always be apparent. At some point, we'll just wake up and then the normal will be new. I mean, think about the Overton window on American manufacturing and American supply chains from you know now to three months ago. You have across the aisles, right? Like whatever political persuasion, people being like, you know what, actually we probably should be able to, and in fact, doing a lot more domestic manufacturing, we should have the capacity to quickly ramp up things like PPE to not have our medicine be produced entirely in China. Like these things actually just seem logical now that we've dealt with this. And the fact that that's not a, I mean, the, the specifics will of course become again, a, a political football because everything does. But the fact that that has shifted so quickly is I think, uh, <clears throat> reflective of what a larger set of changes we're going to see. And in that context, I think crypto creates this lens uh, for examining everything in terms of, you know, in terms of self-sovereignty, in terms of, you know, what the, there's going to be a lot of power accumulated by a lot of people basically. And, uh, and, and by big institutions. Uh, and I think crypto is a, uh, an escape valve from that um, in, in some ways, at least ideally. So I, I think that the story is just being written. And I feel like the fact that there is a, an, an opt-out, even if only a partial and nascent and very incomplete and kind of unwieldy opt-out for uh, a lot of the new power systems that are going to be designed in the next 10 years is a, is a pretty important thing. Sounds very much along the lines of the sovereign individual thesis.
it's going to be weird times, right? Like we're seeing, we're seeing at once two completely like opposite trends, right? On the one hand, you have mass scale, like the, the, the economy has become a war of the state effectively at this point, right? Like there was, uh, you know, in, in 2008, we had this first kind of massive bailout that was said that these institutions were too big to fail, right? That was kind of the catchphrase for that. Um, you now have every industry in the world with its handout uh, in America. And you can debate the specifics of what's right, what's wrong, what should be allowed to fail or what not. Like it's, it's actually like to give credit where credit is due, this is an enormously difficult set of questions, right? That do have a huge number of factors. Now it's, it's easier to just kind of be angry at everyone for having no resiliency in the economy. But like when everyone was bad at doing it, it's probably a problem of the superstructure more than any one individual company. So let's hold aside even the, the easiest and, and probably deserved pitchforks, it still is a really, really tough problem. But so you have on the one hand, like the, the, the nannies, not even the nanny state, but just the, the, the state becoming, uh, or companies becoming a vassal, markets becoming a vassal of the, the economy or of the, the government. Then on the other hand, you have uh, people, you have a totally shifted window on individual bailouts for people, right? And I think that you're going to start to have serious conversations about things like UBI in a way that would have been, again, unthinkable uh, three or four years ago. So all of these things, on the one hand, could have people, could create more and more of an assumption that, uh, well, government's just going to take care of everything for us, right? Uh, From individual to institutional levels. But the flip side is that you're also seeing in this the, the, the most resilience, I think, is in these networks of citizens and communities who are coming together to solve problems because they can't wait, literally, right? Um, so, and this comes from, I'll give you a, 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 a big example to a small example, a bigger example, I guess. Uh, ben Hunt, who was on the show a couple times over the last month, organized <clears throat> this network, uh, uh, basically a peer-to-peer network. He didn't call it P2P because he's not that down the crypto rabbit hole, but it's a P2P network for buying medical supplies off the open markets that are just available to retail, like to retail people in China. And so this is different, right? These aren't the stockpiles that are sitting there that states are negotiating with and having the price jacked up on. These are just things that are in stores. So they're having people who are on the ground in China. It started with employees of Intel China uh, going out and buying it, shipping it back to the U.S., they reimburse them, and then they distribute it on a 50, 100, 200 at a time kind of level to uh, to different departments, doctors who need it. So this is all a, a highly peer-to-peer type of our, uh, effort, right? Uh, they spun up an organization just to facilitate the flow of funds called Frontline Heroes really fast. But so you, you're seeing things like that. And, and you know, on the show, what, we, what I called that was exceptional but not unique because you're seeing lots of things like that, right? But then you have even on a small scale, like I live in a very rural town, probably like 500 actual people live in the town and then another couple hundred live around the edges. And it's predominantly older. I mean, the average income here is, uh, I mean, minuscule basically, right? Like this is a place that has one main street, uh, like two stoplights that end on either side of that main street. Every business has had to shut down. They're all trying to do their part. Like everyone is, this is not a place where people are kind of like grumbling and and getting out of it. You know, again, it's a lot of older people. So they're taking it really, really seriously. There's a lot of fear. Uh, the, The restaurants that have stayed open are all organizing free meals for families without question for anyone who needs it, even though their revenues are going to be down massively, right? And so you have all of this sort of 
community level resilience, family level resilience, network level resilience that's being that's happening at the same time. And so for me, this becomes uh, in part a narrative challenge of which story are you going to tell going forward? Was this the moment that America became kind of, again, everyone just became a ward of the state? Or is this the moment where we rediscovered these networks of resilience that allowed us to redesign in, in a fundamental way? And, you know, my feeling about narratives is that they're completely self-fulfilling prophecy. They are, it's all marketing, right? It's not a historical objective uh, look at what is actually going on. It is a specific intentional decision to try to tell a story that makes the future so. So for me right now, telling that narrative of ground up resilience is so, so important and so relevant. I think the dichotomy of ground up resilience versus the top down nanny state is a, a, a through line for this entire crisis. Like we are uh, we are looking for our UBI checks. Small small businesses are looking for their business loans, uh, and then everyone else is looking for a full bailout. Uh, meanwhile, we have actual communities coming together and and recreating a bottom up economy. Uh, and like people are like what you uh, you said with Ben Hunt, like that's fostering a bottom up system, which is supposedly a an organic economy. And in in the the nature of in the conversation of bottom up systems, I kind of want to turn to what uh, the the main meat of this episode is, which is Bitcoin as a vehicle for truth. Uh, Bitcoin is this bottom up system that is uh, a a revolution in the way that money is works and is understood. And on your on the breakdown, you frequently have labeled Bitcoin as a lens for viewing the world. And so I want to get your take on on what you mean as Bitcoin as a lens for viewing the world? So I think Bitcoin uh, challenges a lot of assumptions about things. It's actually unbelievable. There's, there's, memes have resonance when they hit, and the red pill idea, I think, is really palpable, right? That, that, I mean, at one, everyone has seen that movie, so they have a sense of what that means, right? And it's so perfectly visualized and was there. But I think that the, 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 the synapses that it triggers in people and like cascades for them to think differently about the world is so huge. Uh, and I think that that's what's really interesting. So you have the obvious ones, right? Uh, I mean, the most obvious narrative for Bitcoin in the next that emerged from, uh, from, from this is... It very clearly, the anti-correlation narrative was swept out, though it's much more complex than people give it credit for, obviously. But what happened almost immediately is that the you know, money printer go burr, right? And the contrast of the halving happening at the same time that the, the federal stimulus machine is going is, is a profound and clear and obvious parallel. I mean, someone actually today, I retweeted someone who's like a fin twitter person who, by the way, I don't think is a particularly big fan of Bitcoin or crypto from what I've seen of them before. On the basis of an essay from William Bernstein about why pandemics, why this type of crisis is likely to exacerbate wealth inequality, uh, which basically has to do with the fact that the, you know, the, everyone has to panic sell because we've implicated everyone in the stock market system. Everyone's future is destined about that, especially retirees. They panic sell and they don't get, the, they don't have the privilege of buying back in you know, like just a little bit above where like they are the ones who get kind of screwed in this situation because of just the dry powder available to them. And, uh, and so I retweeted this and someone was like, oh, this is so frustrating that like crypto Twitter is just turning into uh, FinTwit 
uh, with, a, with a libertarian bent rather than talking about like new things and new adoption. And I was like, well, listen, there's a lot to debate about this. One, when you have like a, a singularity type event here that is going to recontextualize everything, like everything becomes about that for a minute. You know, entertainment is about that for a minute. So there's that. But second, and actually kind of, I think more importantly for what we're saying is that part of the reason that we're sharing more stuff from FinTwit is that FinTwit is looking a lot more like crypto Twitter right now. It's looking a lot more like Bitcoin Twitter right now because the scale of this shift in terms of what we thought was economic orthodoxy is so head spinning that all of a sudden they're like, they're sound like us, you know, like the, the, and I, and I think that there's, um, again, this is exemplary of, uh, of this idea of the, the reason that it's less surprising to this community is that this community has thought through these implications, has played, has game theoried out this kind of scenarios in their head. And so it's, uh, it's surprising perhaps for the sheer scale and speed with which it happened, but is not surprising on some core level either. You know, um, so there, there's that whole piece too. But I, I think that the the idea of as a lens, I think, goes a lot farther even than just the properties of Bitcoin. Because once you start to like reject the easy arguments, so like for example, uh, like the kind of Sanders populism versus Trump populism, uh, you know, once you reject the easy dogmas of those things, um, you start to have like this huge space for conversation. Like I had a, a very extensive conversation when Elizabeth Warren was still in the race about wealth inequality and what I thought it was and cancel on effects and all these sort of things. And it's like, that shit is really complicated. Like it's not like most people have not had the context to think about why cheap money would lead to asset price appreciation would lead to the rich getting richer. Like these, these structural systemic decisions, these aren't like morality decisions of one kind of political party or another. Although like at any given moment in history, there's, there's one party who's pushing for, for one thing more than another, but like those things are actually really um, mind opening for people. And it doesn't require them like, signing on and getting a, you know, getting, getting their first coins even to do that. It's just starting to think about this thing as an alternative. Um, so I, you know, that, that's kind of what I mean. I think when I say it's a lens of, of, of seeing the world, it creates a context to question things in a different way. In the past, I've tweeted that Bitcoin's kind of like a psychedelic because it, it opens your eyes <laughs> to a whole new world. You've never seen money. You've never seen energy. You've never seen all these things, uh, until you you've you've seen it through the the, the bitcoin light how, how does bitcoin as this kind of like complete juxtaposition from what the fed is doing right now like how does that start creeping into uh the mainstream conversation more like we already see it with robert kawasaki and all these people kind of like from the hedge fund world and the personal finance world starting to talk about bitcoin what, what does it take to make this thing seem like it's the answer for a lot of the issues that Main Street is having, right? I don't think it's come to Main Street in a real way yet. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, the level is still, we're still at the level of individual missionaries who get their communities to take this uh, more seriously and think differently about it, right? Like, I think that it's actually really important that we don't uh, overstate like we get sucked into narrative traps where we get like uh, stuck in our own memes uh, to some extent. And like right now, like the pizza shop in my town, buying Bitcoin is not going to help them in their short-term concerns, right? Now, I think that you could argue about like, 
shifting from a, a credit culture to a savings culture and how that has implications for everyone and blah, 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 blah. And like those, those arguments are all good. They're important. They're like large scale, uh, you know, societal change level stuff. But we have to acknowledge in this type of moment, the, um, the, the different orders of need, different hierarchies of need. But in that context, who's really effective right now is people that other people trust, right? Like right now, trust in the traditional bearers of, uh, of information in the traditional bearers of leadership is, I mean, there will be theses written forever about how this was the straw that broke the camel's back on institutional trust, media trust, basically trust in all ways. And this has been happening forever. This is not a new phenomenon, but holy shit, did this just accelerate it, right? And so what you're left with is you're forced effectively to curate the people who you more or less think are telling it to you straight, you know, and uh, and so those are the people that people need to hear from. To like, there's not a there's there's no longer a mainstream. There's just a huge number of small streams that all feed in together and sometimes clash into each other. And so it's kind of a, a, a messy process of converting as many of the many of the the the, the those little streams as, as we can until it just becomes kind of a flood. You, the one of the questions that you asked is is why is crypto Twitter so fascinated with coronavirus? Uh, you identified early on that the people that are into crypto are oddly into coronavirus. Um, most, most importantly and most notably like Balaji and Ryan Selkis. And then it spread out really fast. Like those guys kind of started the engine churning with why, um, why the crypto Twitter is fascinated more so than the, the typical population. And you could definitely say that, like, well, Twitter would be the place where, like, the existence of coronavirus would show up first. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that crypto Twitter specifically, in juxtaposition to the rest of Twitter, picked up on coronavirus, um, partly because we understand viral systems, uh, because Bitcoin and, and crypto economic systems are viral systems at large. Uh, and so the structure that makes a virus run is similar structures to how crypto runs and so i'm wondering if that if that conclude if that is the conclusion that you came to or if not what did you come uh come to with why crypto twitter likes to pay attention to coronavirus i think it was a this is a both and type of moment mm-hmm. and i kind of thought that then but i especially th- think that now like I think you can, well, one thing that's become clear is that this was not unique to us. We were just early, right? Like every mm-hmm. Twitter is coronavirus Twitter right now, including mm-hmm. entertainment Twitter, including gaming Twitter. It's all coronavirus Twitter. There's just no escaping. It's that. coronavirus so there's, world. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's that. I think that there's um, a bunch of different reasons. I think the uh, understanding exponential systems is certainly a thing. That was something that people said a lot. Um, but, I, you know, if I'm being really honest... I think that the biggest reason is that we pay a lot of attention to China and Asia. This is the first industry in history, first technology at least, that has grown up simultaneously all around the world at the same time. And it's, uh, you know, uh, arguable, and I think pretty compellingly arguable, that actually, in fact, the USA is not the most important, or at least is not the only important pole of this place, right? Asia and China in particular are hugely, hugely significant in terms of the development of crypto. So when we saw, well, one, there's a lot of people that we know who are actually working there, right? Uh, and when we see them getting quarantined and locked down, and then just more broadly, when we see the entire supply chain capital of the world having somewhere between tens and hundreds of millions of people in quarantine, while markets, on the other hand, are printing new all-time highs, the like 
that the disparity of that information is so brain fragging that all you need, like from there, it's just a matter of whether you think that viruses are going to travel around the world. And this has been like, this is the thing that has driven me nuts. Like, again, as someone who got my start out of college in the social impact world, like pandemics were one of the top things we were talking about in like 2002, 2003, 2004. Like this was absolutely an inevitability, right? A fucking inevitability of the modern world. And so the idea that it, once it was there, that it wouldn't somehow go everywhere in the same way, was just ludicrous, right? So I think you have all of these, uh, all of these like, uh, combination of ingredients that were ready to just be there. And then again, you had a couple of key missionaries. Like biology is really interesting because, you know, he's not just a crypto person. He actually comes from this sort of background. So this is like a particular, was particularly triggering to him. Selkis, I think is a really, has a really acute instinct when information that is important to people is not being shared, right? And I think this was reinforced for him when he was the first one to basically leak the uh, the, the memo about Gox, right, in, in 2014. So I think that those missionaries were really important to also like, uh, to getting people kind of on board and talking about this earlier. I definitely felt like being a part of Bitcoin Twitter and crypto Twitter that I was significantly more prepared. Like, Early February, I was sending my mom mask links on Amazon. I was like, I'm buying these. Yeah. Like, I think you guys should buy them yeah. too. Stuff like that. Um, got the toilet paper before the rush, all that stuff. So uh, the Bitcoiners and the crypto the crypto community was definitely ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I do think that like one of the hot, like the most interesting things, uh, one kind of bright spot for people in this community is that I, I literally don't know that there was any community that you could have been part of where the average knowledge was higher in late January and through February of this, like really like including the medical community because the medical community is so, it's so based on a, uh, a hierarchy of expertise and credentialing, you know, it's not that like, like pound for pound, I'm sure that doctors are, are going to give any industry and uh, like for average intelligence is just raw brain power, you know, but like when your entire world has been like, you trust these institutions, these traditional institutions of power, you don't think to disobey that, you know, this, this brings me to something that you tweeted that I thought was super, super interesting and repeated it on the show a couple of times is that you made the astute observation that this was like one of the first global uh, catastrophes that, or events that were happening where everyone just kind of assumed that the official word was either either they couldn't get the right number or uh, they're faking the right number trying to you know change it. So, I mean, obviously it started in China, um, but even coming into the U.S. now and the WHO and all these international organizations, uh, no one really knows what to believe. And this is really kind of unprecedented. It is unprecedented. I mean, I, that's why I kind of think this is like a camel that uh, straw that breaks the camel's back type of moment in the sense that like none of these things were new, but they're so dramatic on such display and had such immediate consequences. It's very rare that the consequences of institutionally bad decision-making get felt close enough to the locus of that decision that there's actually a chance for citizen uproar, right? Like, I mean, take for example, 2008, like Occupy Wall Street didn't start in like November, you know, 2008, like it took a long time. It took books coming out and being written because these are big like systemic superstructure things. And like, really, I would say that we're, we didn't see the true impact of 2008 until three weeks ago when everyone showed up expecting a handout, you know, like that was, that's the real fallout of that moment. It took 12 years basically to really see those chickens come home to roost. Now, obviously that's 
holding aside everything we were just talking about in terms of wealth inequality and percentage of stock and all that stuff that was like the, the, the also happening. Um, but yeah, I think that when it comes to trust in information and trusted information providers, this is a really rough moment. This is a really, really rough moment. So Christian here talks about how Bitcoin is a conversation about money. Uh, and I think we all, in going down this crypto rabbit hole, you go down the what is money rabbit hole, and then you learn that money is something different. Uh, and then a- alongside this rabbit hole is this idea that um, money is at the bottom of society, right? Like we human values and the, our labor and our sweat uh, gets instantiated in money. And then money is this thing that we share to host an economy. Uh, and Bitcoin as this new money system, this very rigid and very strict money system. And then this is what we were talking about with me, Nick Carter uh, earlier, is that um, money has values in it. And, and it's something that you can grab onto. Bitcoin is something that you can grab onto and use as a point of perspective uh, for viewing other things. And so when we, we you say that like a fin, a fin Twitter, fin, uh, fintech Twitter is viewing is like crypto Twitter because it's viewing the government and their actions through a lens that is like a Bitcoiner lens. And so the, the Bitcoin or crypto Twitter got it right in this idea where like, okay, now, now you got, now that, now that the, the time has come and money printer go burr, Bitcoiners, uh, there seems to be a lot more people who are, who talk like Bitcoiners from that perspective. And then we were also talking about how uh, crypto Twitter, got on to coronavirus earlier than everyone else. And so Bitcoin offers this anchor to latch onto and to view our old money system from a different perspective. And we are able to gain new insights and new realities from that perspective. And it also throws into question um, authority at the same time because it, it goes right to the heart of what is true about the world. And so I'm just wondering your thoughts about like Bitcoin and then what we titled this episode is Bitcoin as a vehicle for truth. Bitcoin is a way to find truth in the world. Uh, Is that how you see Bitcoin? Do you see Bitcoin as this thing that produces truth? Let's take this from two different perspectives, because I think one is uh, more general and one is specific to this moment in this time that we find are in now. So let's start with the uh, moment in time first. Um, so Chamath was on Pomp's podcast uh, on Saturday, and his main thesis is that we were going we're going to have to totally redesign the economy from something that was designed for efficiency to something that was designed for resilience. Right? Like this is, I mean, the fun, fundamentally what we have seen, what has been clearly shown, is that this was an extraordinarily efficient, but an extraordinarily unresilient, an extraordinary, extraordinarily fragile uh, system. In, in so many dimensions, right? In terms of cash on hand for businesses, in terms of the way that supply chains were organized, right? And it's important, what I loved about that uh, spectrum, right? Uh, of showing these two things as two sides of a pole is that there are, if things are always good, there's a reason that the stock market is at all time highs, right? Like the, the, there's, the design for efficiency has created an extraordinary amount of wealth. It's just, uh, you know, for whom and how real is it and how susceptible to disruption is it, right? And we haven't asked ourselves which trade-offs we're willing to make for more resilience in a very long time. Moreover, 
individuals haven't been asked to make those trade-offs or, or think about those trade-offs, right? We live in a consumer society where the, our economy is predicated, the way that it has been designed is predicated on us spending more and more and more, right? Like post-September 11th, we got, uh, like our, our stimulus check was a, was like $400 or whatever, right? Uh, like it was $600 in the mail. Like that was, it was like, go spend more because that was the nature of, uh, of the economy. And now I don't think it's as radical as a, as a wholesale, wholesale shift from one to another. But I do think that you're going to see, uh, well, one, you're going to see the government start to mandate <laughs> resilience and build in resilience um, because they're going to force people to. Uh, and second, you're going to see, I think, a lot of people who are having a very different conversation with themselves and their families about resilience. Now, this is a, even having that conversation is a, is a privilege relative to where a lot of people are going to be coming out of this, right? Like, it's kind of easy to talk about resilience if you're not worried about losing, you know, going from 50 hours to 18 hours a week uh, at your job as the, the, the woman in my town I was just talking to, right? Like resilience, even having that conversation is a privilege. So there's that. But I do think that like for those who are in a position to think <coughs> about and have options on how they design their life, you're going to see some different decisions. Now, in that context, Bitcoin is just seemed, it's perfectly designed for this, right? It is a system that is, like, it, it, def, it redefines resilient. Uh, like Preston Pish the other day uh, uh, around the difficulty adjustment, he tweeted out something like, Bitcoin, the system is so resilient, it's almost laughable. And I think it is. And like the more that you get into it, the more different dimensions you see of that, like difficulty adjustment and things like that. But Bitcoin just it happens to be, I think one of the non-bullshit memes of right now is that it was designed for this moment. Now, I think it would be oversimplistic to, to think that that's just because we're expecting some hyperinflationary period. I think it's much more about the fact that there's going to be a large scale restructuring of, uh, of economies and maybe parts of society to try to be more resilient. And in that context, Bitcoin fits as, as an asset and as a, as a mental model, as a framework. So there, that's the kind of the part of the, the answer to the question that has to do with the, the specifics of where we live in now. Now, as a truth-seeking system, kind of the more metaphorical, like would be relevant in any time, uh, what we were just talking about is this trust in, trust in media, trust in leaders, trust in traditional sources. So in this context, obviously, this trust don't verify thing, right? The fact that this solves uh, the trust problem with openness, with available information, right, is a... Um, a pretty spectacular uh, kind of mental model, right? Where there's a, it, it's funny, like I was having this conversation with um, Dimitri Kofinas today from, uh, from Hidden Forces. And he was talking about how it, it, in the circles that he was like, you know, on Twitter and everything, it was really not allowed to talk about uh, like, how we get the economy back online and, you know, in what context might there be more harm from uh, economic damage than virus damage. And I was reflecting that like, <laughs> although it is so contentious, like again, the Overton window on what people get to talk about on Bitcoin Twitter and crypto Twitter, if they're willing to wade through it is way bigger than most spaces, right? Like it, there really is a, uh, a, a, a vast terrain of opinions one can occupy. Now, again, Hashtag people toxic. are, yeah, <laughs> people are, people are going to uh, come out in force if, if they don't like what you say, you know, but, but at least like, that's different than it's, it's weirdly, it doesn't have a cancel culture, like not to like try to reappropriate that. It would much rather fucking yell at you 
you know, like forever, then cancel you, I think. Like, and maybe I'm being optimistic, but again, like I told you guys, I'm in the business of narrative, so I'm going to tell the story that I think is the one that I want to see and try to project and make it so. It's much less agreeable, that's for sure. And like people that come there are okay with that. Yeah. I also think, although I will say that people dramatically underestimate uh, how like productive disagreements uh, where you're willing to like, walk down the path of someone are like, if you don't, if you don't start from a premise of like, you're stupid and you don't get this, like I've had actually a lot of success uh, with people where I thought they were being, you know, really like contentious or overly contentious or dismissive of people like actually like digging in. Now, of course, it's not always going to work. I think that there are certain personalities and like, I don't think that again, the, the algorithms really reward people like, kind of virtual like handshake and agree to disagree. Like that's not what makes for good optics. It's much better to pick battles. But I think that people, uh, I think that there's a lot more room for civil disagreement than, uh, than, than people think to do. That's what POV crypto's for, by the way, <laughs> is, is, is yeah. cashing it out. Yeah, yeah, I love it. No, I, I, lo- I love that that, that was one of the ideas when, so basically the part of the instinct for the, the breakdown or what it was originally Crypto Daily 303 was just like, it's, I mean, every industry in the world, every business in the world, like has daily news analysis. Like it's just a thing that happens, you know, mm-hmm. and no one was doing it. So it's like, screw it, I'm going to do it, you know, like, and, and then it's kind of, uh, it, it kind of morphed. But, but as I was thinking about this, I knew I wanted to do something podcasty or with video and this idea of trying to create a, a debate space was something that I was really interested in. But, uh, but I think you guys, you guys have a much better approach to it than, than I would have done. It's nice because me and Christian went to college together, so we have that that background to be able to to slap each other around with. Yeah, that, I think that's really important, actually. Like that rapport goes a really long way. So, what's next next for the breakdown? Uh, what's the next six months? Next six months looks like. I mean, one is just continuing to expand the the perspectives that that come on here. Um, I mean, one thing that's been actually really awesome for me is. I have found people have responded better to having voices that are outside of crypto but coming in uh, way more than I would have thought. Um, I kind of was just like, I I don't, I can't not do this right now because there's Mm -hmm. also like, I have to try to go understand this and I'm going to look at like, again, I've always been kind of like a big systems picture, you know, type person. Um, and so, but people have been really responding to that. So that's really great. So it kind of feels like it gives me license to go get more different people. Um, and uh, honestly, like the, the show is really uh, helpful for me guys. I appreciate it because like this, I do want people to have this idea that like the, what they're going to get, they are going to get some of that like news analysis or whatever, if there's really significant events in crypto. But a lot of times it's going to be like these larger scale kind of questions, but also like the, the fun thing about doing the daily is that you don't have to try to create like evergreen content that people are going to come back to over and over and over again. That's not exactly the value proposition. Now, some of them will end up being that like mm-hmm. Preston is so good on the show, Preston Pish, that I think that people will go back and listen to that episode a lot. Right. Um, I think Peter Zayon, just anything that he does right now, people are going to go back and listen to because he's talking about such significant things that are different than the ideas most people have. But a lot of times, like, what you'll start to see is you'll start to see guests who've been on there two, three times because it's like there's a new set of things that day, that week to talk about, right? And uh, and so so you know, continuing to build out and expand that is is really important to me. And experimenting with different formats, like one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot is, um, I think it's insane. Uh, the like money and economies are 
like pretty much the most significant forces, uh, more or less, the defining forces in everyone's lives. But if you look at the average, like across financial media, like it's basically all us. It's all like college educated, like, you know, like upper class, upper middle class folks, like who come from that perspective. And even those folks who aren't from that perspective, like fought in to get there versus like having like a really uh, interesting, different conversation that like, I really am, I'm I'm very interested in uh, finding either people who have uh, come to Bitcoin, but from a radically different perspective and doing like, I don't know, mini series or like, you know, bingeable series with them or something like that. That's like a really different, like kind of content unit or, uh, or going and finding people who haven't and figuring out like what it looks like to expose them and let them find their way down the rabbit hole. So I don't know, I'm kind of like, I can't not experiment with content mediums. I'm just kind of this by, by nature. So I'm sure it'll keep evolving and, you know, I'll, I'll follow my nose with what, what seems to work. I have to say you are, I, I think you're the most prolific content creator. I thought that we were pretty <laughs> prolific, but I, I don't think we can stand a, mm-hmm. stand a chance compared to you. The long read Sundays are, are just absolutely epic. Um, oh my God. The, the, those are the, when it was really sad to move that from Twitter, just because like Twitter just absolutely destroys threads now it just became not worth it uh which sucks because like they designed this medium they've continued to build and push features that make it easier to do that medium but then the the algorithm just absolutely buries it you know so that's that's a real shame but it, it those things especially when they were on twitter they took a really long time like that was insane i mean honestly much respect i want to end with uh with some predictions uh if you could like if there's like a theme in the short term that you're kind of honing in on and then a theme in the long term that you think are, is going to be important now that we've kind of had this pivotal shift. So I think that, I think that you're going to see the acceleration of a lot of trends that were already underway. Uh, but I think a pretty dramatic form. I think that the, well, when it comes to the crisis, like the, my biggest frustration now is that we're, we keep fighting the wrong fight rather than asking the right question, which to me has been for weeks, what does it look like to actually restart the economy? Like this is the only question that matters because it's a health question and it's an economic question. There's no light switch that we flip on that this just works, right? It involves testing. It involves like dealing with really thorny privacy issues as it relates to tracking individuals. It deals with like having staggered systems of bringing people back, having the capacity to get people to voluntarily stay home. Like it's, it's going to be incredibly complex complex. And because we keep having some stupid fight, like the latest stupid fight is why were all the models wrong? It's like, well, the, the, the counterfactual of a pandemic where you didn't start to do things like social distancing makes it a very easy thing to be like, like you don't want the, the model to have been right, right? You want to have gotten sufficiently ahead of it that it was wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't question models that we can't reevaluate our systems, right? Like that's not what I'm saying at all. But so anyways, that's, we're having that stupid fight now instead of, again, like the real important one, which is like, how do we actually get people back to work? Um, so, so I think that we're going to see, there's going to be a lot of pain in that. It's going to be really bumpy. It's going to like extend this way more out, much longer uh, than it could be. I have no idea what's going to go on with the larger markets. The consensus that I seem to see is like, people are really not convinced by this rally like even a little bit. Um, I've I've been dumping. uh, And that that seems to be like, 
well, it's weird because like the, the smart people that I follow seem to think that, but then a lot of others are buying in. So I don't know. I, I'm definitely out of my scope for sure. But I, but I do think that it would surprise me if there wasn't a lot more second order effect pain over the next year. Um, I mean, certainly like my favorite meme is uh, that dude in the yellow uh, suit who's like creeping by a tree like this or whatever, who's like waiting for something. And so the, I saw one that's like millennials waiting for house prices to crash so they can actually buy their first home. That is 100% us right now. We are like, ooh, come on. Like, okay, boomer, like stock market's down. Got to sell your second house, like preferably in Rhinebeck in New York so we can buy it. So, so yeah, I think I, I, I unfortunately, like I don't want to predict pain. I, I don't think it's impossible that this insane amount of action actually does like allow this crazy party to go on a little longer either. Like it wouldn't shock me, you know, like I think that they're willing to go to the ends of the earth because I'll just say this before I get to the, the other side of this, like one of the event horizons that we've crossed that I don't think people really appreciate is this administration's willingness to do literally whatever it takes to get reelected. And this is like every, every president wants to get reelected. This is not a unique thing, right? But like, I genuinely do, don't believe that there is an upper limit on what they will do without any question for long-term implications or precedent as it relates to the, uh, again, the, the, the economy basically relying on continued prop up from the state. Once that happens, that becomes, it immediately becomes not a party, right? Can you imagine the political courage it will take to not bail companies out in the future or not bail people out like it's going to be nuts so again this is a a catalytic force maybe an event horizon that's crossed that just based on the virtue of 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 who's in the seat now but might have been no matter who it was right uh it's not necessarily like it might have been the exact same with hillary too right so uh so that but i think that that's actually a really big issue where uh and why it could be so wonky for for so much time is that I, i don't know like there will never be uh, nothing else they can try. There will always be something else they can try. And so it's really going to be a weird thing of how much can the U.S. system bear as, you know, the, the, as the, the only economy in the world, effectively. So that's kind of like big macro picture is just a lot of confusion, potentially really different outcomes uh, and a lot of pain uh, along the way, particularly because we're just not going to have a smart conversation about how to get people back to work. Um, I think the thing, one thing that I'm watching that I think is really interesting in Bitcoin and crypto is people fleeing local currencies as they get devalued relative to the dollar into US, uh, USD denominated stable coins. Um, so Max Bronstein and Avi Feldman wrote a really great piece about this crypto dollarization uh, on their blog. Um, Nick Carter wrote about it on Coindesk a couple weeks ago. I think it's a really, really interesting phenomenon because this is an area where if you can't, and it is really hard and it's going to get harder to actually get exposure to actual U.S. dollars for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, getting exposure through these synthetic, you know, approximations becomes much more interesting um, and interesting to parts around the world. Now, we've already seen this type of behavior with table coins and Tether in particular uh, in Russia, China, you know, all these places that, again, have restrictions on how they can move money and, and why. But I think that you're going to start to see it from from. Argentinians, I think you're going to see, you know, like anywhere that is dealing with a a complicated currency. And by the way, every currency right now is is complicated. I haven't looked recently, but a week ago, the Australian dollar had fallen to like 27% against the USD. That's crazy, right? That's crazy how fast that happens. So this is a situation where uh, a crypto asset 
solves a real, real pain point, real problem right away. Uh, but I think that, you know, we, we talk about things that end up becoming on-ramps for Bitcoin, right? So the conversation last year around Libra and digital dollars and stuff was like, well, will people get exposed and then maybe they want access to Bitcoin? And like, I bought that a little bit, like with the Libra thing, like maybe some small portion of people would. I buy it way more in the context of citizens, individuals, businesses trying to flee local currency regimes in like a very destabilized economic period. The, the path from Tether to uh, asset exposure to something like Bitcoin and other things in the space feels much more plausible to me than like, it's all good times and I'm using Libra bucks to shop and maybe I'll go learn about Bitcoin too, you know? So, so I think that that's, that's something that I'm, I'm watching. I think the immediate beneficiary is not necessarily Bitcoin. I think like dollar, because dollar is the only asset that's holding up in any real way, that's where people are going to want to go. But at some point people are going to want to buy other things. And, uh, and I think a, a lot of them are going to, you know, they're going to have the dry powder sitting there to, to maybe go over to some different things. So that's kind of something that it's, it's not so much a prediction, but something that I'm certainly watching. Nathaniel, thanks for coming on to POV Crypto. The, the takes in here are, are wide reaching and, and definitely come from a, a privileged spot of access to information that you have at the breakdown. So for our listeners, I definitely recommend the, the listen and subscribe to uh, NLW, uh, your Twitter account. And then also, uh, does the breakdown have its own podcast, uh, Twitter? No, not yet. I have, I have a lot of stuff that I got to do to update that. But So if, if people want to follow you and, and the breakdown, what should they do? Uh at me or then look for the breakdown or uh, or my name Nathaniel Whittemore on any of the podcast places it'll be everywhere basically cool you can find our podcast at POV Crypto Pod make sure five star reviews Bitcoin is getting close to 10k but it's not going to get there until we get 100 reviews so please get us there we're so close awesome thanks Nathaniel right on guys thanks for having me I appreciate it It's a fool.